This is Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking discussion about everyday dilemmas. Our goal here is to offer you insights and perspectives on sticky situations so you can better examine your choices and exercise your own ethical muscles. I'm your host, Marna Ashburn, joined by wife, mother, and attorney, Kelly Halligan-Zimmerman. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Marna. Hi, Mike. Hello, everybody. And Mike Derrick, a retired Army officer, combat vet, and father of four. Hello, Mike. Hey, good morning, Marna, and good morning, Kelly, and good morning to all our listeners. Yes, welcome to our listeners, and thanks for joining us. This week, we're talking about panhandling. You know, the folks at the intersection or outside the mall with cardboard signs that say, homeless and hungry, please help. God bless you. This is something I'm conflicted about. On one hand, Christian charity compels me to help others less fortunate. On the other hand, I wonder if I'm enabling irresponsible behavior or worse, being duped or played. So we're going to talk about that. But first, we have some listener email. This is from Megan. She writes, I recently listened to plagiarism in podcasts, press releases, and other places, episode 22, I'm a librarian, and I educate middle school students on copyright and plagiarism. After listening to this podcast, I was disappointed that you all did not take a stronger stance regarding the podcast who took information from another podcast without any attribution. But I was even more surprised that you gave William & Mary a pass on their recent clear plagiarized news release. Holy cow! I went to the Swim Swim article and saw firsthand the blatant sentences, phrases, and ideas taken directly from the Stanford press release. If one of my middle schoolers presented the William & Mary press release and represented it as their own, they would be in big trouble. It is important that plagiarism and copyright not be dismissed when someone says, I didn't know. Also, I really enjoy your podcast, and I think you all have great conversations. Thanks. Well, thank you, Megan. We really appreciate your writing into us. And... I have to say I disagree with you. I think we did come down pretty hard on the podcast, who was plagiarizing without attribution. Not so hard on the William and Mary press release. The reason I didn't is because I I know that colleges all confer with each other, universities, and they'll share you know information communications that worked well for them. It wasn't a scholarly work. What do you guys think, Mike? What do you think? <laughs> I knew you were going to do that, Kelly. <laughs> I want to thank Megan for you know listening and and taking the time to comment on what we said. I think, you know, you've kind of called us up short, Megan. I appreciate that. I understand it. I guess as maybe a little bit of, uh, you know, mitigation on the other side is that one of the things that all of these, uh, in this case, athletic departments are hamstrung by these days is uh, legal implications. And they, you know, they've probably vetted those words, whether it's at Stanford or at uh, William & Mary, with their legal team. And it may be very much, you know, it may be a legal team that's talking to a legal team at another university. So sometimes that's the case. But you have a good point, Megan. I appreciate it. Maybe we should have been a little harder on William and Mary. Yeah. I mean, I think Megan's probably right. And she's more of an expert because she is a teacher. Um, And I know Megan. She has a master's in library science. Uh, She's super knowledgeable. So I appreciate and respect her input. I think that my prejudice and my love for William and Mary probably got in the way. Me too, maybe. Yeah, I mean, and I hope that I was clear about my connection, our connection, Marna, to William and Mary, and I'm sure that got in the way. There has been a lot of blowback as a result of uh, what the athletic director did. Um, We'll probably have a show where we follow up on things, but in fact, she ended up resigning, um, and right now William and Mary has an interim athletic director. And I'm sure part of uh, the reason she resigned and 
you know, I don't know all the details and I'm not an insider by any means, but I think that the press release was a real problem and it probably did not receive the review um, and the scrutiny that it should have. And that certainly it reflects upon the college, the president, and the athletic director that released um, the statement. Um, but the statement did come from the athletic director and the president. And also but, the provost. Okay. They thanks. all signed it. Thanks, Marna. A good point. So I wonder if in today's society, in some ways, so many things are compromised and none of us want to you know, be looked at as too strident or, you know, too moral. And so I think sometimes we're reluctant to take a really strong stand. So I appreciate Marna, you know, as a teacher trying to teach youth um, the right way to do things. Um, You know, I appreciate Megan calling us out. Well, as I recall, Mike and I both said that it was bad form because it was a very sensitive subject and the words should have come from William and Mary, not from an outside source. But I, I do remember kind of soft-shoeing on the plagiarism charge. Yeah, I think I did. I, I think I said, oh, I can understand both sides. <laughs> then I tried to argue both sides. So definitely should have taken a stronger position. Yes. If you borrow material, you got to cite your sources. That's just how it is. Yeah, especially on such a painful topic. I mean, and we've seen this now across the country as colleges cancel non-revenue sports. And uh, it's happening everywhere. If you're going to shut down some students' activity or their sport, you know, have the courtesy to think it through and and do it in your own words. Thanks, Megan. Exactly. Yeah, thank you very much, Megan. And also, as a postscript, all the sports which were cut have now been reinstated, at least for another year. Wow. And they're working on sustainable financing for them for the future. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, part of that you know, full disclosure is that they had a Title IX lawsuit that was pending and issues with regard to Title IX and non-compliance with Title IX was brought to William & Mary's attention, which caused them to, you know, take those actions. Yeah. All right, let's move on to our topic today, which is panhandling. One evening, while I still lived in downtown Savannah, I was hanging out on the stoop with some of my neighbors. This is an urban area of townhomes, if you can just picture that. On the block where I lived, I'd been approached for money many times, and the reasons always tugged at my heartstrings. I need five bucks to sleep at the men's shelter, was one. I need money for gas to get to work. I need bus fare to get home. On this night, a man walked up and asked if we could spare any money so he could go buy some diapers for his baby. One of the guys gave him some money, and one of the women said she actually had some diapers she could give him. So she ran inside and brought out a package that she had left over from a baby shower. After the men walked on, we talked about panhandling, and I heard a range of opinions from, this was from a nurse, I do enough charity work to just give them money and send them on their way. What insights and perspectives can you offer to our listeners on this topic, Kelly? Oh, this is such a difficult topic, and we all want to be caring and compassionate towards others. But this topic involves homelessness, substance abuse, often mental health problems, or people that are just down on their luck. I kind of did some research in anticipation of today's show, um, and I found a really great website, the National Homelessness Law Center, or NHLC. And what they say is that panhandling is caused by a lack of adequate affordable housing, low wages, lack of health care, and other systemic causes. And what they say is that we need to address people's survival needs and that that's the best way to end panhandling. They even, and we can post this, 
the link, Marnuk, because they have a page on panhandling within their website. And I found it really interesting. They have a, a section called Myths About Panhandling, which kind of goes right to what we're talking about today. And I have to admit, I sort of believed a number of these myths. So maybe I could, would it be okay if I read a couple of them? Would that sure. be? One is panhandlers will spend donated money on drugs or alcohol. And that's always been a concern of mine. And you know, that's the myth they have. And then the fact they have is several studies show that when money is donated to panhandlers, most spend it primarily on food and other necessities. Another point was panhandlers are lazy and don't want to work. The fact is the success of work programs in cities like Albuquerque show us that panhandlers who can work will if given the opportunity to do so. So I would encourage people to look at this page and see what they have to say about panhandling. And we'll post Uh, that link on our website. It's complicated. I know I worked in D.C. during um, law school, and I would frequently have people come up to me and beg, and I never knew what to do. I I sometimes gave them money. I sometimes said no. I I felt bad no matter what I did. And then one, one occasion, I saw a panhandler approach a man in a suit, you know, like my dad's age at the time. And the gentleman was super polite and just said, no, but how about if I buy you a sandwich? What would you like? I'm going into the the store here to to get myself some lunch. And um, he bought the young person a sandwich, brought it out, had his own sandwich, was heading back to the office. That was a great example. um, Yeah, that's one way to handle it. Now, as far as diapers, (laughs) and then I'd love to hear what Mike thinks. Just from practicing law, diapers is a funny product for a time. And I mean, this was back in the late 90s. You know, we saw a lot of diaper theft and I represented people that stole tons and tons of diapers (laughs) and they didn't have children Um, there was something about diapers they were able to exchange them for drugs and different things it was kind of a sign of somebody that was taking the diapers and turning them over you know as I said usually for drugs nowadays diapers are often used um, to resell online um, because it's a you know even if you cut the price in half there's a huge market out there and there's a lot of money to be made. Wow, who knew? Yeah, I know. I had no idea either. (laughs) Um, You know, I ended up with one of my clients trying a jury trial. The jury was very sympathetic to the client. He he was convicted, but he didn't get any jail time or any fine because they were sympathetic to him. You know, meanwhile, there were no kids. He He had no kids, but he was stealing diapers Mm -hmm. because it's an underground currency. Yeah. Anyways, nowadays, it's still fairly common. I did a little bit of research because, you know, People just turn around and resell them, and it makes sense. They're very expensive, but they're all wrapped up and packaged, so you can just resell them on the web or go into smaller convenience stores and sell them at a you know at a discount, make a lot of money. So here's a downriver lesson from that: if you're getting really cut rate diapers for a good price, they're probably stolen, and you're the fence. Okay, this puts a whole new light on diapers I never had. That's for sure. <laughs> It is a big expense in the budget when you have little kids. I remember that. Yeah. Brings me back to uh, my stay-at-home dad days with four toddlers. Oh, my God. Thought I'd wiped all that from my memory, but uh, I guess not. Thanks, Kelly. (laughs) So, Mike, what are your thoughts on this? Oh, I think like both of you, I'm I'm very conflicted. Obviously, we don't have many panhandlers here in in northern New York. It's, It's too remote and it's too cold. At least it is at this time of year. But, you know, at different times in my life, I've lived around this country and I've lived in, in big cities, also overseas. 
Um, and I've always been very conflicted about it because on one hand, uh, you see people who clearly look needy. But on the other hand, I've also seen people for whom it's a business. And I can remember distinctly in Washington, D.C., I used to have to walk across a uh, square called Farragut Square every day on my way to work. You got to, since I walked this route twice a day, you saw the same people in the same outfits with the same signs, some of which were clearly not, not true, like need money for bus fare. And this guy was there for weeks and months. He wasn't going anywhere. That was just his shtick. I've read some of the same research Kelly has that, you know, the money typically doesn't go for drugs or alcohol. Many people would disagree with that. Many experts would disagree with that. It's, again, I don't have a good answer. I just kind of play it by ear. I would tell you, though, that if somebody's playing an instrument or doing some sort of performance and it adds to the, the vitality of the city, I'll give them some money. But someone who's just standing there with their hand out less often, also anybody who's really aggressive and obnoxious, I'm not even going to consider it. Also, when I lived in Savannah, I was on my way to work walking, and a man, older man, panhandled me. He, he was always there at the same spot. And when I said no and walked past him, he hit me with a barrage of obscene insults. I could not wow. believe it. Wow. <laughs> oh, man, that's upsetting. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was horrible. But at the Walmart near my house, I will often see women panhandling, pregnant women, mm -hmm. and women with children. Wow. Yeah. I don't know. I will always err on the side of giving them money, but I, I do wonder if, if I'm being played. Mm -hmm. You know, speaking of that, Marna, I, I used to uh, go to Brussels quite often when I worked with NATO. I'd be downtown in, in Brussels, uh, Belgium, and... I was walking once with a guy who lived there, and uh, we were talking about the number of women begging on the street with children, and they just looked horrible. I don't know whether this is, uh, in fact, the case, but his point was this is the, the, the public-facing side of organized crime. If you give them money, you're just, it's, they're not getting it. It's going to their, to their bosses. Sometimes those are family groups. He was adamant about Well, that's about very it. troubling. Yeah. He said it's just the forward face. It's the public facing side of organized crime. And so uh, sort of like prostitution, but, yeah, you know, yeah. holding these people hostage to yeah. beg. And the exploitation of small children, you know, children who were unkempt, who looked sick, who were poorly clothed. They were they were a mess. So were, so were the so were the women that were with them. It was very, very social sad. services is, you know, I'm not, obviously I don't know the Belgium legal system, but even here in the United States, you know, I would think social services would get involved. These kids should be in school. It's really a mess when you, when you do a lot of reading or a little reading about it. I mean, it's just an intractable problem that just can't be resolved almost. You know, the New York Times had several articles over the last year on homelessness in California. It's a disaster and they have just poured money into the problem, and it doesn't seem to have helped at all. Well, I know in my community, it is rich with services for people who are homeless and hungry, and I often wonder why people who are panhandling are not taking advantage of these services and state benefits. In fact, we're going to talk about getting panhandled at intersections, but in my town, they did post signs at the busy intersections saying, please don't participate in panhandling, because for them it was a safety issue. But at the bottom of the sign, the county put, if you need assistance, please call this number. 
which was like a clearinghouse number where you could call if, if you need food, if you need shelter, if you need medical care. They didn't make it illegal, but they did trying to do something about it. So what are your thoughts about being panhandled in your car at a stoplight? Mike? Wow. Well, you know, you you mentioned that in the, the prep for this session, Marna, and it brought back a memory, which I hadn't I had in decades. I grew up here in New York, uh, same town I live in now, and I got my license in the late 70s. And for some reason, probably 78, 79, I was driving in New York City. And if memory serves, I was by myself. Pulled up to a stoplight, and this guy started washing my windows. Well, first of all, I'm petrified driving in New York City, probably for the first time. And secondly, who is this guy, and why is he washing my windows? Why is he lifting up my windshield wipers? And then, you know, what's I, I was shell-shocked. What's going on here? This guy's pounding on my window, demanding that I pay him something for having washed uh, my window. And I tell you, it's, it, now that you brought this up, it, uh, it's a bit of a flashback. But I think that's way beyond the pale. That goes back to what I said a moment ago. If somebody's aggressive, if somebody's uh, doing something that you haven't asked for, if uh, somebody's panhandling at night, that's another whole thing. If they come up to you at night and get aggressive, you don't want to have anything to do with them. And um, I know many cities, New York uh, among them, have outlawed that sort of thing where you can't go up and perform a service and then, without being asked and then expect to be paid. So... Yes, I think that was when Giuliani was mayor of New York City. He put a stop to that windshield. Yeah, he may have come cleaning. in later, but yeah, he definitely. Oh, you're right. You're right. Yeah, he was the one who kind of uh, cleaned that yeah, up. Yeah, because sometimes if you didn't pay your windshield wiper cleaner, windshield cleaner, they you know they break your window. Yeah, break your window yeah. or scratch your car. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and that's just yeah. not good business. Yeah, and you're really. I mean, you're seated in a traffic jam in your vehicle you're really at a disadvantage as these guys move among you. It's, uh, it, again, it's for, for me at that point in time, it was very, very scary. Kelly, your thoughts? The only thing I'd say a, about ordinances and laws, I'm sure that, that they exist as far as people performing services without being requested and then requiring payment. But because of the First Amendment and freedom of speech, many of the ordinances and laws have been held unconstitutional with regard to panhandling. There's a kind of a main case, Norton versus Springfield from 2015, which deemed most panhandling laws um, unconstitutional because of the First Amendment. So that resulted in a number of cities withdrawing their restrictions. I think like Cleveland, Dallas, Denver, and other cities, you know, repealed their laws. So, you know, there are still localities and cities that are you know, trying to restrict or limit panhandling via ordinances um, or laws, but uh, I think they're really questionable constitutionally. It's a hard thing to control. I just thought I'd mention that since um, Mike brought up the legal aspects of it in New York City. As far as being panhandled in your car, I definitely have had that happen. When we lived in Arlington, Texas, my kids were swimmers. Two of the kids were swimmers, and they had swim practice every day. And I drove through an intersection every day that had like a homeless encampment in the woods just, just up from, from the traffic light. And they always had somebody out panhandling. And I did on occasion give them money, but usually I just hoped that the light would be green so that I could just go through the intersection. You know, I didn't like it. I had the kids in the car. You know, I was by myself. It was unnerving. Yeah, I feel I bad like saying that. But, I mean, th that is how I felt. 
Well, like we said, there are services, community services for people who have needs. Why do you think they're not availing themselves of these services? I think there's a couple reasons. One is that very clearly in certain places, uh, panhandling can be pretty lucrative if you're good at it and if you, you know, you work hard at it. Um, And then that's tax-free money. They don't have to deal with any of the requirements that, you know, some social services require that you, you know, you be sober when you walk through the door. There's that. Other is mental health. I mean, there is uh, a whole cohort of people out there on the streets who are in great need of mental health care. They don't want anything to do. They're just absolutely, for whatever reason, they want nothing to do with the government. They want nothing to do with help. Um, it's it's a very difficult situation. Yeah. I think it's mostly substance abuse and mental health issues that results in people not taking advantage of services. If you have a terrible substance abuse problem, it's very hard to break and people aren't ready to, to go cold turkey. I mean, I'm sure there's, you know, some places where they could put them into treatment, but it's just a big step for anybody to take. And then as far as mental health issues, I mean, those problems are so significant and they really impact people's judgment and decision making. And that's why they ended up on the streets because they couldn't live with their families. They were unable to hold a job and their families were unable to help them. I mean, the mental health stuff is super complicated. Yeah. And the addiction stuff. I only recently found out, and Mike, you just mentioned this, that you can't sleep in a shelter if you are under the influence of anything, drugs or alcohol. Yeah, that's right. You can't come in the door. And the other thing that many people don't like about shelters is they close the door at a certain time of night, and then you can't leave in the middle of the night. So you have to stay until whenever the release time is the next morning. There are people who just, even if they're not, they don't have a substance abuse problem or they don't have mental health issues, they just, they don't want that to be that limited and uh, that controlled. Unless it's the absolute most extreme weather when it's a matter of life or death remaining on the street, they're not interested in a bed provided by somebody. Well, yeah. in the winter, that, that can be pretty bad if you're on the street. Yeah, I think those extreme weather conditions can be really dangerous. The extreme cold or or the heat. And I also think, I mean, these shelters often, you know, are really good places and they're really doing God's work, but they also can be not the safest places, you know, as far as your, the little bit of personal property these folks have. I mean, I think theft is a problem. It just can be challenging. Yeah. You know, we, we lived in Colorado a long time, and Colorado has an interesting, uh, at least our town, Colorado Springs, had an interesting uh, homeless problem at the time. I don't know if it's still the case now, but typically weather in Colorado Springs is pretty temperate. doesn't get too hot in the summer. Winters can be quite mild. But every now and then, the weather just comes in really hard, in, especially in the winter, and it gets really cold or really snowy. And I can remember the scramble that would take place between civic organizations and faith-based organizations to get everybody off the streets. And, you know, vans moving around at night looking for people who were still out on the streets and getting them into shelter because otherwise they probably would freeze to death. You could expect it to happen two, three, four times a year when the weather came in. You know, a real credit to the different organizations that care about these things. So that's one memory of Colorado. Another that I haven't seen but I've read about is, you know, we've talked a lot about the problems. There are some cities which have come up with innovative solutions, Denver being one of them. Denver has taken 
the uh, you know the posts on sidewalks where they typically would have a parking meter. They put collection boxes for the homeless. So there are 86 of them in downtown Denver. So people, instead of handing their money to an individual, can put their donation into one of these collection boxes, and then they go directly to a certain number of services that assist the homeless. Wow. It had reduced panhandling by 90% because, you know, they've taken the incentive out for people to panhandle on their own. Now, it's impossible to tell where they went. Are they benefiting from those social services or did they just go to Albuquerque? Who knows? I like that compromise. Is there any downside to those collection boxes? The article that I read, and I probably should try to find it again, Marna, so we can put it up on the website. It seemed to, you know, at least from the perspective of Denver, it seemed to make a big difference. Yeah, let me see if I can find that and uh, we'll try to get that up for folks. Okay. So I just happened to go on YouTube last night and searched panhandling. And there's a couple of videos, which makes you think, hmm, am I being played? Uh, one video was somebody did a surveillance on panhandlers and what they did after their shift. And there were a lot of instances of them changing clothes and getting in nice cars and driving to nice homes or nice apartments. This was in England. Wow. They call them professional panhandlers. Yeah. And one man in London reportedly makes 50,000 euros a year panhandling, tax-free. Wow. And there was another story of a man who used to see an older woman, elderly woman, panhandling, and he would give her money. And one time he skipped lunch so he could give her his lunch money. And then he was at a gas station, and he saw her pull up in a, a nice new car and pump gas into her car and he confronted her and somebody was actually recording this on video he confronted her about scamming people that you know she wasn't homeless she wasn't poor she was driving a nice car and she said it was her son's car he said well what's your son letting you beg on the streets so there are these stories which kind of makes you wonder if you should give those are rarities though marna maybe you're right i don't know i don't know you guys i think maybe you're a little overly optimistic here i mean i've seen it firsthand in dc you know professional panhandlers who they're not only aggressive to those they are soliciting but oh you better not get in their way if you're another panhandler they have their spot of the sidewalk where you know and they've got it all worked out if it's a, a crosswalk and it's a long crosswalk so they have a a significant period of time to work a crowd while people wait for the the crosswalk sign to change. I'd like to think you guys are right, but I I think there's a lot of people who do this for a a pretty good living. I think it's out there for sure, as well as people with genuine need. So let's do a round robin here. Kelly, you're walking into um, the grocery store tomorrow. Somebody's panhandling. What do you do? Um, I probably avoid them. (laughs) That's my tactic, avoidance. (laughs) Cross the street. Yeah, I mean... If I'm coming out and I have handy change, I probably will, you know, we'll give them something. I I will size them up, but I don't think I, I think I genuinely disagree with Mike and you. I I really think that probably 2% or 3% of panhandlers are professionals kind of taking advantage of people. I think most panhandlers are, are really folks that are down on their luck, genuinely in need of help. I mean, they may have a drug problem. They may have... A mental health problem and and I hate to think my money's going towards drugs but I probably would give but my initial instinct would be to just avoid them okay Mike what do you think I think I size them up 
I guess I've seen enough of this over the years in different places, different cities, different countries. I trust my gut. If I see somebody who clearly looks like this is a temporary condition, they're down on their luck, they need a hand, and it's legit, you know, they don't look like they are drunk, hungover, under the influence, you know, I might give them some money. But, you know, I just quickly want to go back to the way Kelly opened this, and I think it was very thoughtful on her part, and that was that this is just a symptom of larger issues in our society. And here we are, the wealthiest country in the world, wealthiest country in the history of human civilization. You know, somehow we can't manage to care for people's mental health in many places in this country to don't pay a living wage. There's inadequate housing. There's inadequate medical care. And, you know, the income disparity between the haves and the have-nots just continues to become even greater. I'm starting to sound like uh, the Democratic politician I used to be. But um, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. I think it's just somebody with a good heart. That's Yeah, you're making you good points, though. The wealth disparity is a huge issue, and that's why the problem is so difficult in California. People have no place to live. They can't afford to live anywhere. Housing is yeah, so true. unattainable, um, and there's just something wrong with that. In defense of our country, homelessness is a problem everywhere. You know, like you talked about Belgium, India, and in many large democratic countries, you know, you will see homelessness, you will see panhandling to get back to the specific issue. You will absolutely see it. You won't see it in, obviously, in North Korea, where people are truly starving, or, or Russia or China, you know, where you basically have a dictatorships because those people don't exist. They're taken care of. Well, not to mention all of these issues that we're talking about are now exacerbated by COVID. Oh, yeah. And the economic downturn it has brought. You know, so many people have lost their jobs. So many women have stepped out of the workplace. What Kelly just said makes me think. So is homelessness, panhandling, vagrancy, is it is it all just part of a free society? Because Kelly's right. You see it all over the world. I do think it's part of a free society. I do think there are some people that choose to live that way. Is it a good choice? Is it a well-informed choice? And maybe their judgment is is impaired. It clearly is. But what can we do about that? I mean, we people struggle in their own families with people that make poor decisions, that have substance abuse issues. And, you know, you almost go to the AA handbook. And, you know, if you kind of follow that, you know, you live and let live and there's not a lot you can do about it. So I, I do think in some ways it is a sign of a free but flawed society. You're giving us lots of things to talk about here. Yeah. I don't know if we I'm solved anything today, guys, did we? It may be unsolvable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one thing I would say is I think about things in a libertarian manner oftentimes. And so, I mean, one thing that we all can do is give to excellent nonprofits that help people with the issues that cause panhandling, you know, like the Salvation Army or Catholic Charities or, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, Covenant House, there's all sorts of great charities, and, and that might be a, the best use of, of our money. Yeah, good point, Kelly. I'd encourage our listeners also, if you have the chance to get involved with a soup kitchen or some sort of other program that feeds the poor, feeds those that would otherwise perhaps be begging on the streets, you know, do it. It really gives you a different perspective on your own life. And, uh, you know, Kathy and I have been doing this now for a couple of years, and we hope that it makes a difference in our small town, but it, it also has helped us better understand our country and maybe a little insight into ourselves. Mm-hmm. 
Let's leave it there. Small acts done with great love. Let's keep the conversation going. Leave us an email or a voicemail at our website, www.ethicsandetiquette.com. Check out our Instagram, at Ethics Etiquette, and our Facebook page, Ethics and Etiquette. If you want to support what we're doing, subscribe to our podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts, and we'd appreciate it if you took time to leave a positive review while you're there. And thank you to all of you who keep recommending Ethics and Etiquette to your friends and family. For Kelly Halligan-Zimmerman and Mike Derrick, I'm Marna Ashburn, and this is Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking dialogue about everyday dilemmas. It's good to be with you, and please join us again. New episodes are posted on the first and third Wednesday of every month. See you then.